if you're going to make content, you have to be making it because you love making it. If you are getting into YouTube content because you want to make money, that is maybe not going to be the healthiest direction for you because you're going to be so focused on the results. And for a long time, your results are going to be bad and you're not going to have the numbers you want. So I think like if you want to be a content creator that like that, that drive has to come from within. You have to have some intrinsic reason why you want to do it. It's fun for you. You enjoy teaching people. You want to be a part of the community. You want to get involved. There has to be some internal reason first for why you're going to make that content, because that's the thing that's going to keep you motivated when things suck. Welcome to Humans and Magic, the show that gets up deep and personal with your favorite Magic the Gathering personalities. I'm your host, James Sue. You are listening to episode 104 with Phil Gallagher, MTG content creator and owner of the Thraben U YouTube channel. In this episode and deep dive, Phil is going to share his content creation journey from writing to streaming to YouTubing. And he's got a lot of tips and just everything you want to know to get started. I love this episode because there's a lot of practical advice. There's a lot of nuggets of content creator wisdom. And quite frankly, Phil's just one of the good guys in the game. He's just had an incredible trajectory with Rabin University, Rabin U. He's very open to improvement, making changes. And I personally loved having this conversation with him. I think that if you are interested in content creation or just a fan of content, I think you'll take a lot out of this episode. I would love to get your support on Humans of Magic, the project. So if you have not had the chance, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Both accounts can be found at Humans of Magic, one word. We also have a new Patreon, patreon.com slash humans of magic. If you want to join our exclusive Discord community, you want me to help review your podcast or content, happy to do that through the Discord and the Patreon. I have switched to a weekly release format. So Humans of Magic is always going to be free. It's always going to be a labor of love, but the Patreon is going to go a long way to cover the additional intensity of the workload. And I'm really happy to do weekly episodes. I want to get more Humans of Magic content out. So your support is always appreciated. The phenomenal music you hear in this episode and every episode of Humans of Magic is supplied by Kupla. That's spelled K-U-P-L-A. Kupla is an absolutely fantastic musician. He's a magic player, and you can find all of his music on all the streaming platforms, including Spotify and SoundCloud. Definitely give him a follow on Twitter as well, Kupla Sound, and uh, tell him Humans of Magic said hi. Today on Humans of Magic, I am here with magic content creator extraordinaire and YouTuber savant, Phil Gallagher. Phil, how are you doing today? Uh, it's, it's great to be here. Uh, I'm doing really well. Uh, my content creation has changed a lot over time. It's not Twitch streamer anymore. It's, it's YouTuber. So uh, here we are. I love it. I love the fact that you've just undergone this 
transformation. I don't even want to say fully transformation. It's more like an evolution, right? Because you started off with magic content, magic player, obviously, but to use a magic term, your range has expanded significantly. So we'll definitely get into that. But the first thing that comes to mind is like, what does it feel like to be a magic YouTuber. And I don't even want to say legacy because I know you do all kinds of formats, but what is it like to be, what's a day in the life of a magic YouTuber like? Um, it's really interesting that you asked this at this exact point in my life, because as of this summer, I'm going full-time content creator for the summer. Um, I'm, I'm a teacher for those of you who don't know me very well. Uh, so normally teachers kind of usually do a summer side hustle of some kind. And my magic stuff has become lucrative enough that I can now do it full-time over the summer and not work a summer job. Uh, so my days right now usually look something like get up in the morning, record a league, have lunch, record a second league, and then spend about two hours doing other magic stuff. Um, a little bit of advertising time, a little bit of time answering comments and emails uh, a lot of like explaining my plays to people in YouTube comments. Um, right now, there's a lot of networking going on. Um, maybe we'll get into this more later, but I'm looking to get into EDH. So I'm doing research for that, building CEDH decks, uh, already building resources for that community because when people link me stuff, I'm like, okay, so people don't have to do this again. I'm going to compile it for everyone. So it's like surprisingly easy to spend eight hours a day doing magic content stuff, even if you're only recording for three or four of those hours, just with all the other things that kind of fill your time, ordering cards. Uh, I've got a bunch of new technology and stuff coming in that I'm going to be learning to use and work with. Yeah, that's, that's quite a lot. I mean, I, I guess I'm wondering if it means that there are some days that, because magic's Magic content creation is basically a job, as you alluded to. And congratulations, belated congrats on decision to go full-time. That is extraordinary, right? It's basically something that a lot of magic people can hardly dream of because it's like uh it's it's a great leap forward or great step. But having said all that, it must be it could be draining on some days, right? To feel like I have to do the two leagues, I have to spend two hours networking or promoting some of the stuff, editing the videos, like, are there certain days where it feels tougher than others? Oh, oh yeah. Uh, mental health and content creation is really wild because as soon as you start really relying on magic as a source of income and it stops being, I'm purely making these things for funsies, all of a sudden you start to care about analytics and numbers and results that you didn't necessarily care about before. And kind of like my number one tip for magic players and people getting into content creation is try not to let your viewer count or your results tie into your self-worth as a person or, or you're going to go mad, right? Like if your video flops and then it ruins your day, like you, you are going to go into a negative spiral and, and some days are hard where I'm like, all right, this video is going to be a banger. And then it's like number 10 out of 10 in my rankings on YouTube. And it's like, oh, something went wrong here. Um, and, and some days it's exhausting. Like so, some days I do get up, I look at the deck I'm going to record and go like, 
I am going to 05 with this league and it's going to take me three hours to record with this smokestacks deck or whatever. And, and it's going to be a tougher after, afternoon than like, all right, here's this sweet meme combo deck list. Uh, I'm going to have fun playing this. It's going to lose, but it's going to lose quickly and it's going to be really funny. So when, when you put what you play outside of your own control and you start doing donation deck list models, so sometimes, sometimes you do have to put the smile on for the camera and, uh, <laughs> and put on a little bit of a show. Absolutely. I think as magic players, we just have a sense of what we're heading into, right? The smokestack deck is going to be a grind unless you're really into that kind of thing. It's, you know, it's, it can be challenging. I, I would say. Yeah. So that's the thing too. I think with content in general, you just don't really know how it's going to land. So I like your I like the point you made about just managing your expectations, as it were, because sometimes I'm sure you have this where something that you expected would do very well, as you said, didn't land. But the flip side could also be true too, right? There might be some videos that you don't really have much expectations of in a way over exceeded expectations. Can you give me maybe some examples of that in your portfolio perhaps yeah um let's go to the release of modern horizons 2 which was one of the magic sets that just absolutely rocked content creation yeah when i went into recording videos around that time my thoughts were this new card is sweet i'm gonna record with this new card and i went in with low expectations looking to have fun and then I realized everyone was super hot for Modern Horizons 2, and everyone was really excited about the deck lists. And then I started rattling off my first, like, air quotes, big videos that really hit the algorithm hard and succeeded. And th those came from the middle of nowhere. I didn't expect it. I was super happy when I got one video. Uh, I think that was the time where, like, surpassing 10,000 views was huge for me. And then I got another and another and another in like a two week period. And I expected none of that. And I was ecstatic when that happened. So when that happened and maybe it happened beyond your expectations, like how did you take that as a content creator? Like, did you think about how to capture the lightning in a bottle or are there certain takeaways from that, that you, that you sort of tried to apply going forward, kind of deconstructing the quote unquote success of it? So the, the first thing it was, was really like a big shot of content creator adrenaline. It, it showed me some of the possibility that was there. And that gave me a lot of motivation to work harder. And I really stepped up my, my game around that time. Um, as far as like analytics and stuff goes, I, I really um, delved into the analytics for those videos, tried to see like, where are these new viewers coming from? How many of them are sticking around? Um, and I tried in that time period really hard to play as many deck lists as I could showcasing new cards, like good or bad, like what are these new things that I can do? Um, I was one of the first people to record with uh, like Shardless Agent, I think in Modern when that became legal. Uh, I was one of the first people to record with Cauldra. I was one of the first people to record with Affinity. And being the first to something hot has some huge advantages and not every deck list i played was good most of those those deck list ideas didn't stay around but 
being the person who's willing to test the new and interesting things, be they good or be they bad, so that other people can gather data on them is something that I value doing a lot and I think was really good for me as a content creator. It's also nice to have that network effect. I mean, not speaking as a as a YouTuber, but just as a viewer. It's like the fact that you're willing to do a lot of different decks and explore a lot of ideas that are not explored yet, it gives people creative fuel, right? Like if I watch the video that you where you try to make Charlotte's agent work in modern, I could go and do something different. And it's it's not even so much like helping you as a content creator, but just like putting stuff into the magic world that is potentially cool and that people can can sort of like remix your ideas and mix and match ideas to to make something happen. So I guess the question is, have you gotten any feedback as to any notable feedback as to how maybe something in your video helps spark another thing that someone else later did or a couple of things that they did? Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll go back to my, my D and T days for this one. This is death um, and taxes, by the way, for those who are not so deep in the legacy stuff, it's uh, oh, maybe you can describe it. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll do that. So death and taxes is a mono white control deck in which all of the control elements are stapled to creatures depending on what format you're playing. These are things like Leon and Arbiter, Thalia, Guardian of Thraben, Archon of Ameria, Sanctum Prelate. These somewhat taxing effects that are stapled to annoying like 2-1 creatures. Um, so kind of like one of my places in the Death and Taxes world was like being the guy who was willing to test all the new cards that got printed, no matter how good or bad they, they looked. I would always play a league with them and I would always get the early results and I'd say like, Here, here's my thoughts after playing a league. And uh, one of those cards I tested was Brightling. Uh, this is one colorless and two white for sort of a, a baby Aetherling or Morphling. Morphling. Type card, it, was a, was it like a time shifted Morphling? Are. Yeah, for those of us that go back a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I, I was one of the first people to kind of test this card, kind of uh, threw some streams out there with it. And a couple weeks later, I, I get a package in the mail containing a bunch of copies of Brightling uh, from a good friend of mine. It essentially said, like, thanks, Phil. I, I played some of these in my locals. They were awesome. Also, I speculated on this card because of you, and I made a bunch of money. So <laughs> here's some Brightlings. <laughs> and that card didn't stick around for very long. It was very good for, like, a three-week window, and then the mm -hmm. metagame shifted, and it was basically never good again. Mm -hmm. But I was the person who was like, okay, let's let's see if this card has staying power. Yeah. I think I also remember watching one of your older DNT videos. I think it was, I don't even remember the the creature anymore. I actually bought the the cards on pa in paper. It was this, it was this, I mean, it, like you said, it was like a, a DNT sort of creature, um, like a 2-3, two, 2-2, two, two, very unremarkable body. But when it died, it created spirit tokens or something like that. I, I don't exactly remember the name of the card. Hallowed Spirit Keeper. Hallowed Spirit Keeper. Shout out to Hallowed Spirit Keeper. And I do remember it being a pretty good meta choice at that time. And I don't even remember the reasons. I think it was when, was it when Grixis Control was still a deck in it, it in was Magic, in Legacy? Yeah. Yeah. So the games were going on for basically infinity turns. Your graveyard was filling up. So just having this thing that you could play 
and it essentially was unblockable because if your opponent blocked it and it died and they yeah. and you got like literally six or more spirit tokens from it uh mm -hmm. it was just very dumb mm -hmm. so phil i want to go back a little bit in time because you know i kind of jumped the gun first and talked about what you're doing right now with the youtube and some of the success you've had but take me back to the beginning like how did you even start playing magic in the first place uh this is this is super cute uh, i don't tell this story very often um so when i was growing up uh, I, I was a babysitter for my next door neighbor and uh we we always by the way where play. did you grow up like what what part of the u.s i assume right yeah u.s uh far suburb of chicago uh you know, basically, if you're in the Chicago area, you just tell everyone you're from Chicago because it's just easier. Um, I, I lived about an hour outside of Chicago. And uh, so my, my I was the babysitter for my kid neighbor uh, and he kind of like adored me. So he often got into the things that I got into. Uh, and so like I gave him a bunch of my old Pokemon cards and Yu-Gi-Oh cards and he like became a gamer by playing those things. And then when I went home, my junior year of college, he was old enough that he had gotten into other things. So he actually showed me Magic the Gathering. And then when I got to undergrad, my, my senior year of college, I mentioned in passing that I had learned to play Magic over the summer to my, my current roommate. And he was like, dude, I used to play. I played in Boy Scouts. I still have some starter decks. I'll bring those in. And then a week later, another friend of mine mentioned he worked at a GameStop. And he was like, hey, we're about to offload all of our bulk. If you come down with your car right now, I will give you an entire backseat worth of Magic cards for $40. And on a college kid's bu budget, that was a dream. Yep. So I learned how to really play Magic and learned how to deck build by just sorting through I don't know, probably literally 10 or 20,000 cards and just learning what they did and just trying to put them together in fun ways. And I ended up like kind of accidentally building a bunch of like previous standard ideas just by like piecing the, the decks together. Uh, and that was, that was a lot of fun. That, that was kind of like the start of how I physically started playing. And then at the end of that year, I moved across the country to Maryland to start grad school at the University of Maryland. And I didn't know anyone on that side of the country. So what do you do when you're a nerd and you need to meet people? You go to a game store. And it was at that point that I started getting into legacy and competitive magic. And at that point, and I'm going to really date myself here. At that point, I started seeking more magic information. So I logged on to the MTG Salvation Forums. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, which uh, really got me delving into more information, looking for strategy. And that's where I started writing strategic content, I guess. Like they're, they're glorified forum posts, but that's where I started sharing information and like tried to start putting myself out there as like someone who was an air quotes deck expert. Mm -hmm. uh, at, at that time, I still really didn't know what I was doing, but I was, I was making steps in the right direction. I think there's also a good process of even if you're not an expert yet even if you don't have the results that you like to have in a competitive sense it's nice to kind of work out the ideas in writing because other people can comment on it and i think just the act of 
putting your thing, your thoughts out there is a good exercise, right? I, I would, I would assume that's, that's how it was in your case. Yeah. And I, and I think the best example I have of that actually comes from teaching. Um, I'm a Latin teacher. And the first year I taught Latin, I learned how much I didn't know. Mm. Like I had internalized some of these things, but I had never tried explaining them to someone. And the first time you sit down and you have to explain what a declension is or what an indirect object is to someone, you, you just go like, well, I know what this is, but how do I word this, word this simply so someone who doesn't understand can understand? Mm-hmm. And that's a skill that I have really tried to cultivate over time. What did you realize when you first tried that as you were teaching Latin? Is it just like just your students had a complete confusion on their faces? Like, did they get it partially? Like, what was that process like? And how did you go from them not quite getting it to figure out how to communicate in a way that they could understand? Well, I think the first thing you get hit with is probably a wave of imposter syndrome where you wonder whether or not you're really qualified to be doing what you're, you're doing. And, and this is something that'll probably happen to many of you in your professional lives, in your magic lives, where you feel you're not good enough for what you're doing despite your qualifications. And when I first started teaching in some of those first couple of days, I'm like, man, am I really as good as this as I think I am? Like I have a master's degree, but I'm not as good at this as I expected to be now that I'm actually doing it. And a lot of it was just like taking a deep breath, taking a step back and going, what steps am I skipping in my explanation? Because I'm ready to go from A to D, but my students need me to go from A to B to C to D. And then they also need me to explain A and B again one more time, just to make sure they actually understand it. That's really hard. How did you develop the self-awareness to realize that you had to really slow it down? A lot of it is being honest with myself. And a lot of it is being willing to admit that I'm wrong and to ask questions from people who don't know as much as I do to get their perspective. Because like, I, as someone who is very well educated, will know a lot of things that are very straightforward to me that I don't need to think about. And that's not true for my high school age students who just don't have as much world experience. Um, the, The easiest example of this is just ask a random person on the street what a direct object is. And despite the fact that most of these people are fluent in the English language and they can use a direct object correctly, If you sit down and ask them what that definition is, they're like gonna hum and haw and maybe not really get it. Mm -hmm. And so like a big period of growth for me was realizing I need to treat these people like they know nothing. And if I confirm that they know things, I can move faster. But until I can confirm that these people understand things, I need to work at their pace. And I tried to transfer this into my magic content the best that I could. Whereas a lot of times with magic magic content, you start assuming that people understand everything about everything. And when I run a deck tech, even if it's a deck that I've run in legacy a hundred times on the channel, I will start by explaining the combo, the deck name, the core interactions, uh, important other things that the viewers are going to need to know. 
rather than assuming like, yeah, you know how painter grindstone works, right? Like, no, I'm going to explain it to you every time, just in case. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, if you already get it, you can always fast forward the 30 seconds or two minutes or something, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I have so many viewers who just skip the deck text and they're just like, yeah, I know what, I know what this deck is. I'm just going to go right into match one. And then I get a comment like, Hey, at the 15 minute mark, why didn't you do this? And then I'll like, for those people who watch the, the deck, deck tech, tech. I'll go like, okay, here's what you're missing. I said this in the deck tech, but. You're very patient too, I guess, even in the comments, because the, the YouTube comments can be, to put it lightly, very challenging. <laughs> like the, you, sometimes you get comments from people whom you don't even know if they watched the video. They, they must have, you think they must have, if you, if you, uh, what do you call that? Like if you assign good intentions to the comments, but sometimes it's hard, right? So you gain very little if you just dismiss everyone, right? Like if, if you want to grow a community, if you want to grow as a content creator, uh, even if you just want to like build a better community for yourself and your friends, like answering the questions that people have, like answering them intentionally, answering them accurately to the best of your ability and like owning up to when you made a mistake or when you don't know something, like those are the sorts of things that are going to drive engagement and make people want to stick with you. You know, if I say like, hey, idiot, listen to the deck tech, that person is A, not going to listen to the deck tech and B, probably not coming back to my content. Yeah. Whereas if I say like, hey, this is the interaction and I spend the time to type two sentences to tell someone something that I've already told them, that's okay with me. Yeah. And spoiler alert, as a teacher, so much of my year is telling my students things that I've already told them. Like patience is, is a tool and people don't learn something the first time when they see it most of the time. It often takes repetition to really internalize things. I was just going to say about the repetition part. It's basically how you learn anything. You have to you have to review your notes. You have to ideally do some mental exercises to confirm that you know the stuff because I think there's too many people that try to learn just by watching or reading something once and your memory just doesn't, it just doesn't work that way. You just can't retain anything, right? And I assume the same would be for, for magic too. Like just you have to put in the reps, right? Yeah. Um, if you look at tournament players who are successful, a lot of times they're people who are like deck specialists who know that deck in and out and they get a huge advantage in tournaments because they can just like rely on this like muscle memory of having been in these situations before and just kind of knowing what to do without sitting there and going like, okay, they have five cards in hand. They're at 15 life. I have this many points of damage. I need to play around this. They can just go like, yeah, I've been in this situation before. I know roughly what I should do on this turn without giving it any real thought. That's an interesting road because this is something i want to ask you too is sometimes as a magic player you develop too much in terms of muscle memory or heuristics where you may not actually stop to think about something because you think that you've gone through this a hundred times and maybe you're going by gut feel or intuition so has it ever happened to you where maybe you needed to to kind of go back to basics or not not resort on some of the heuristics that you've developed. That's always a fine line, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, So one of the things I tell people when they feel like they've plateaued, 
when they feel like they've stopped making growth or when they're kind of like falling into the same patterns, kind of stuck at the same win rate is record your matches, have someone else watch them. They don't have to be someone who plays your deck, just someone else who is as good as or better magic player than you have them watch that and have them ask you questions. Why are you doing that? What are you playing around? And that process of having to physically verbalize what you are doing and why you are doing it is going to help you a lot. And the outside perspective is going to help you in two ways. Number one, it's going to help you see things from your opponent's point of view who doesn't necessarily know your deck as well as you do. And number two, they're occasionally going to say something that is utterly stupid or utterly genius. And either way, you're going to have something to think about. Right. Right. That's, that's, that's great advice. I can just remember when I had my ruts as a, as a player in the legacy format, and I actually hired, hired, I guess it just basically got some help from coaches or people to play a league with me or review the replays on magic online because magic online is very good for that. And uh, that really helped because I just thought that I was stagnating a lot in going through the same things. And I actually started to learn a lot of things like, you know, this is how you actually canter properly. This is how you should consider this and that. So I, I think there's a ton of value in just getting an outside perspective. I think that's so I totally agree with you there. Uh, so I want to talk about heuristics real quick. Uh, first thing. For those of you not familiar with the fancy word, heuristics roughly means guidelines. They are mental shortcuts for what do I do in this situation. Uh, and a lot of times they will have a catchy phrase associated with them. Something like, always bolt the bird. A good first step in heuristics is like learning the heuristic and how to apply them properly. And then the second step, when you get a little better, is when do I break the heuristic and when do I not do the thing that I think I'm supposed to be doing most of the time? And learning when to deviate from those heuristics off, oftentimes is like a big level up for people. For sure. You have to know when to uh, cast aside the sacred cows, maybe not a sacred cow for heuristics, as, as you said, they're guidelines, but you have to remove the shackles maybe sometimes just to figure out how to win a match or how to approach a matchup. So, Phil, I know you're also a DNT coach or you have coached other people before. So can you talk a bit about that too? Just kind of your experiences? Because all the things you have just said up to now, I think they all sort of apply, right? In fact, I actually talked to one of your, your students, uh, Bill or William, and he said that you were very, you basically just said you were one of the best coaches he's had just period, not just in magic, but maybe tell me about how you approach that and how you helped Bill or others like Bill. Um, coaching is awesome. It is just like the warm and fuzzy portion of magic where you just get to like raise this child and watch them level up and watch them learn to ride the bike for the first time. And it, it feels so good. Um, I, I do coaching, I don't know, probably once or twice a month on, on average. And the first thing I'll say about most of my coaching, like the, the people that I coach is they're not the best magic players in the first place. And one of the things that I'm doing is teaching them how to think rather than giving them the right answer. 
So I, I think a lot of people in, in magic are, are looking for the sideboard guide. They are looking, what is the correct answer? What am I supposed to be doing? You know, what is the end result? And instead, I'm trying to teach the people the thought process that gets them to those sideboard guides and gets them to learn to make those decisions. So I, I almost never will tell my players what to do when I'm coaching them. Instead, I, I ask guiding questions. Which two drop are you playing this turn? And they'll give me their answer. And I'll say, why are you doing that? And they'll give me their answer. And then I'll say, why aren't you playing this one? And they'll give me their answer. And then I'll ask another question. And then they'll change their mind about their play. And I'll say, why did you change your mind? And it's a little infuriating for the first couple of turns. And then they get that I'm training them. I'm trying to get them to think, what are the implications of these play? What do you need to be thinking about in your opponent hand? Your opponent has played a single fetch land. What does that say about what deck they are on? How does that change your play? What is your sideboard approach? Why are you sideboarding that way? And I'm trying to show them there's not necessarily like a right and wrong answer to these situations. I'm trying to teach them how to think so that they can walk away with a real skill after a two-hour session. Basically teaching them how to fish as opposed to just saying the fish is over there. Yeah, ab absolutely. That's, that's what I'm trying to do. And a lot of times, about two weeks later, I'll get an unprompted email that says like, hey, Phil, thanks. I didn't know what I was doing wrong because nobody has ever told me to think in this way before. Like no one has showed me how to do this before. Like I, I improved a lot. Like my win rate went up by 10%. You know, I top aided my local FNM, you know, whatever their victory is for them, like some time spent with someone who can help cultivate them usually ends up getting them pretty far. Do you think it's more rewarding to get someone else to play better or to play better yourself? Oh, 100% to get people to play better. Like at, at this point in my magic career, I almost never enter in competitive events myself anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm still interested in them. Every once in a while, like I have the desire to scratch that. It's also itch. hard if you have to do two leagues and editing and all these things a day, right? Uh, <laughs> it, it is. There's that. Uh, there's like a girlfriend I have to care about too. You know, mm -hmm. there's like time commitment things and spending a lot of time on magic for like the job and then like trying to do more uh, grinding on the side is, is tough. And work-life balance is another thing that can be really tricky, uh, as you very well know, uh, as magic can be uh, a heck of a rabbit hole to go down. Yeah. So going back to your, your magic story, how did you go from posting on internet forums about DNT to actually starting your own website? So I spent a couple of years kind of grinding on the SCG tour or whatever it happened to be called at any time. Uh, probably picked up uh, 20 or 30 IQ top eights, most of them with death and taxes, although I played other things as well. And then I kind of got into the judging scene as well. Like as someone who wanted to get better at competitive magic, the piece of advice that I got, it was from Joe Lissette. Uh, I remember it vividly. Uh, I was playing Miracles in the first open that I cashed and he watched the tail end of my round and like, I was kind of fanboying. I walked up to him afterwards and I'm like, Hey, do you have any advice for me? Like, I know I'm not playing this well. What should I be doing better? And he told me, 
that if I wanted to get better at magic, I should make sure I understand all of the interactions because I was playing Miracles versus Dredge and I don't remember exactly what I got wrong, but I got something wrong involving one of the triggers of one of my opponent's cards and I made a costly error. I think I won the game anyway, but I like very clearly messed up and it was on me. And he was like, if you want to get better, that sort of stuff needs to stop happening. Mm-hmm. And I got home that weekend and I immediately started training to become a judge. Like that was like, okay, I have a path forward. I need to be better at the rules. I need to understand these things. And so I eventually became a level two judge. uh, And that knowledge really helped me become better as a competitive player. It gave me a lot of vocabulary that I didn't have before. And as I sort of started to flex my knowledge, I kind of started writing some things for myself. And then I realized if I'm taking the time to do this for me, I need to share this. And I started putting together a list of resources specifically for legacy death and taxes. Like I was, I was emerging as this deck expert. I had a lot of things that I knew. I kept seeing the same questions just again and again and again on MTG salvation. And I put together all these primers, all these things that had like judge rulings, informations. How do you build your deck list? What does this stupid card flicker wisp do? And why should I care about it? And I compiled all these resources and I launched the website on my birthday when Thalia Heretic Cathar was spoiled. And the initial website went so well that we just absolutely crashed it repeatedly for about the next three days as it had way too much traffic for my server to handle, which was honestly a victory. Honestly, it was a, maybe a good problem to have because it ex- exceeded your expectations, right? Oh, it, it, was, it was awesome. Yeah. It's really cool as a content creator when something works because spoilers, you are going to have a lot of flops as a content creator. Like you're going to do something and you're going to think it's so cool. And then you're going to realize nobody wanted to watch this or nobody wanted to listen to this or the target audience for this was too small. So like when you have a hit and like you, you get that positive dopamine reaction, uh, it's, it's nice to have some good brain chemicals every now and then. Is that around the same time that you started streaming or did the streaming come afterwards? Um, the, the streaming came afterwards. And the reason why is honestly because I didn't make a lot of money. Um, a teacher's salary isn't great, just like full stop. I came out of college with a fantastic education, but a lot of student loans. And I spent, I spent a long time chipping away at that. And at the time, death and taxes on Magic Online was about $700. And that was an expense that I couldn't justify. You know, I could justify the $30 a time to enter in a magic event. That was, that was fine. I could justify 50 bucks to upgrade my deck every set release or something like that, but blowing $700 at the same time to get a deck on magic online, it was, it wasn't feasible. And then a donor, um, I, I think they requested to remain anonymous, essentially gifted me a large sum of money and said, Hey, I love what you're doing with the website keep it up. And a little while after that, I decided to go ahead and take the plunge. I, I, I had to buy a computer that was better than what I owned. Uh, you know, spoiler teacher salary again, not good. So like I bought a computer, I bought the deck on magic online and I started streaming. My setup was admittedly pretty bad in retrospect. Uh, could have done some things better if I had more knowledge, but it, it got the job done. Yeah. It was what you needed to, to start 
embarking on the streaming the streaming life and how did how did the streaming life go like what was it what was that what was climbing that mountain like so the streaming life kind of did two things number one it helped me improve as a magic player a lot because basically the only people who were watching me were other death and taxes diehards and when you have oh i can imagine yeah (laughs) when you have like you and 20 other people like many of whom i imagine were just like sipping on scotch or something watching me play going like oh why didn't you do this one and like i have to defend my plays against Mm -hmm. only other death and taxes players like you you pick up on a lot of things that you otherwise might have missed on your own Mm -hmm. and number two it really helped me build a place socially in the magic community because MTG Salvation was one thing. It was forum posts. Like you get to know the people and their writing style and whatnot. But like when you can sit there and chat with people in live time, that that builds something different. And I really started to feel like I I, I truly met these people. And many of these people that I air quotes digitally met through streaming, I would later go up and meet with at events. So that's fantastic. Did it also create some sort of... Uh nervousness or anxiety streaming for the first time because i mean obviously you overcame it in in retrospect but in hindsight but it's it's sort of harder to be live than it is to sit down and write something or pre-record something right in a lot of ways i had already had a lot of experience teaching at that point so i wasn't super nervous about it the thing that got me more was the mental exhaustion of doing it So playing magic is mentally taxing. Playing magic while talking with people is harder. Playing magic while trying to like talk about the magic and also be entertaining for chat at the same time and like occasionally having to like ban someone or mute someone and deal with that sort of stuff as well. It's a lot to juggle. So the first, the first couple of times when I streamed, I would stream for two or three hours and I would feel like I had worked an eight hour shift just in mm-hmm. terms of mental overload. Now I'm used to it. Now I can kind of do it with it being mostly second nature. But when you watch someone play magic and they like, and they're streaming and they're talking about something and they like very obviously punt, most of the time that's not because like they don't know what to do. It's because there's so much going on and they're thinking about so many things, thinking about what entertaining thing they're going to say next that like it's so easy to just brain fart for half a second. I still make that mistake a lot watching streams where I expect the streamer to essentially play perfectly, but it's just a bad assumption because they're probably spending 30 40 50 percent of their brain actually doing something else i think it's different for everybody like i interviewed aspiring spike on humans of magic and he claims to have a second brain that helps him multitask oh not not in my words not his words he didn't say second brain but it's just like because he's he can play magic somewhat intuitively he doesn't have to think so much about some of the lines. And I think that's also just experience, right? But basically his claim was that for him, he could do more interactions with chat and crack jokes because of that. But I think everybody's wired differently. So there's people like me where if I'm playing magic, I have to be like 100% focused on magic. And I probably would just tell my viewers if I were a streamer, like I just can't talk right now. And you'll have somebody else who they can still talk and make jokes with 30 seconds left on the 
magic online clock. And, you know, for me, I'd just be sweating bullets. And so it's very different for everybody. So I guess the question is like, how do you, where are you now today on that spectrum? You know, like be able to fully multitask versus being an incoherent mess like me if I'm playing magic. Well, here's what I'll say. Today I had a Voltaic key, which lets you untap an artifact. And I said, yeah, and now I'm just going to use this and I'm going to untap my Grim Monolith and then I have the win on board. And you bet that I absolutely untapped a Mox Opal. So it's I, hard to I undo feel, that one, yeah. <laughs> I feel very good about my level of play while being entertaining. That said, I, I still make mistakes all the time. Like where I've figured out the line, I've talked about it, I've decided on it, and then my opponent goes AFK for a minute, and I like start looking at like my things on my other screen, and they snap back, and it's like, oh, okay, I messed that up. <laughs> it happens to the best of us. So you're still streaming today, right? You still stream on occasion? I don't think I've booted up the stream in about a year and a half at this point. Um, I transitioned to being almost only a YouTube content creator. Uh, the stream's still there. Like it, it exists. It hasn't been deleted. It, it lies dormant. Okay. It, it's waiting for the right time. I will say I'm currently more interested in appearing as a guest on other people's stream than I am on, uh, than I am interested in streaming myself. Uh, Why is that? Part, all right. Um, part of that is just in terms of like analytics and numbers. You make a lot more on YouTube than you do on Twitch for most people, uh, just in terms of the amount of ad revenue that's given to you. The other thing is that if you're live on Twitch, if you're live for two hours, those people have two hours to watch you. But just like all around the world, they have to be live at that time. Otherwise, they can watch your VOD. If you put something on YouTube, that is available 24 hours a day. And people just like inject YouTube content into their veins all the time. It's their lunch hour, pull up YouTube, you know, go into bed, fall asleep to YouTube. YouTube is a much more accessible platform for a lot of people. And I think there's more room for growth and kind of like my meteoric ascension on YouTube in the last two years uh, really just is kind of evidence of that. I didn't grow much on Twitch in, uh, I don't know, three or four years of streaming and in two years of taking YouTube seriously, like it's become a real part-time job. And in another two years, I might have to ask myself, like, am I still going to teach during the school year or to, or like, am I a magic guy now? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say you're halfway over halfway to being a, a full-time magic guy in my opinion, but you mentioned this as being kind of a practical consideration. So I'm always curious by this stuff because are there did you have influences? Like, did you have people along the way that helped you see the light? Like maybe you can describe, I, I assume it wasn't a completely solitary journey, right? Oh, absolutely not. I think it was Arnold Schwarzenegger recently posted this like video that went viral that uh, the gist of it was essentially like, don't call me a self-made man because there were so many people who supported me along the way doing little things. And those little things meant so much to me and I couldn't have gotten to where I was without them. And that is absolutely the case with me. If we go back to the MTG salvation days, I learned so much by working with Finn, who was one of the uh, creators of the original builds of Death and Taxes. And kind of in the current era of content creation that I'm in, 
Um, I, I owe so much to Bryant Cook and Brian Koval, who are my co-hosts on the Eternal Glory podcast. Uh, those two people have pushed me to become such a better content creator uh, in terms of not only just like analytics, but in terms of making things better for the viewer and kind of thinking about things, not just from the perspective of like, hey, I'm the, I'm the death and taxes guy. I'm the competitive tournament guy. But from the perspective of like the viewer who is watching my content at home. So a very, I know Brian and Brian as well. Um, kind of a tongue twister saying both their names. Uh, I'm sure you're very used to that being their co-hosts, but they're very high level players, right? They're very high level players. They, they dabble in a lot of different formats. So it sounds like they can give you a very like critical view of your content as well and just help you get better, not just as a YouTuber, but also how you present yourself. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. So Brian was the first one of us that had a video go viral. Brian was the first one who had a legacy video hit 10,000 views. And for an individual content creator who is like not doing a video through Channel Fireball or Star City Games or whatever, that was huge. And that lit the fire under my butt and made me think, can I do that too? Can I have a video go that big? Is, is that possible? Because for a long time, when I was posting videos on YouTube, they would get like 200, 500 views. And I now know the reason why that was. It was because I wasn't doing the, the marketing and the, the search engine optimization and the thumbnails and that sort of stuff. And I get that now, but I didn't understand that then. And Brian kind of lit the fire under me in that regard. And Bryant gave me a lot of analytics-based feedback. Bryant is an awesome data guy. He will sit there. He will look at spreadsheets. He will dig into numbers and analytics. And then he'll just kind of like clearly distill it down to the conclusion. And he'll say like, hey, I'm going to try this based on what I'm seeing. That's actually, so it sounds like it's almost like a, a friendly rivalry in a way because you're pushing each other to do better in some ways, right? Oh, ab absolutely. Like I, I very much consider Brian my friend and personal rival. Like I, I am absolutely chasing in his shadow right now. You know, he, yeah. he's this far ahead of me and I'm going to say like, I, I, I want to be doing what you're doing with the numbers that you have. And I'm going to keep pushing myself to do better. That's and it's, phenomenal. Yeah. It, it's, it's never like an open challenge. Like I, I am doing everything that I can to help him and he is doing everything he can to help me. And the same is true of Bryant as well. A rising tide raises all ships, folks. And if you find people who are going to work with you and like push to make you better, those are the people who you want to work with. They, they will help you grow as a magic player, as a person, whatever. You just reminded me a little bit of the, the, the famous YouTuber, Mr. Mr. Beast, because yeah. I listened to an interview with him. And mind you, I'm not a YouTuber, but I really love just understanding how people do their craft in different fields. And he basically said that when he was much, much younger, before he was Mr. Beast and well-known and, you know, one of the biggest YouTubers on the planet, he spent, I think, one or two years just having a Skype group way back in the day when he was a kid in high school and just figuring out every day, like doing a masterclass with like other people in the chat who were also aspiring YouTubers and just try to figure out how do I go viral? Like they would actually critique each other's videos, like... People don't really understand like how much 
overnight success is not overnight success, right? Because you might have a video that hit 50K or 10K at first, but people don't see all the work and all the incremental things that had to have happened, right? So I, you just reminded me of that because you kind of have your cabal of, you know, the three of you, maybe there's others as well, where you're working on like the little techniques and then it sort of like compounds and it builds up over time, right? Yeah. And there's so many other people who have helped me. Um, Julian, uh, renowned elves player, person who ran the legacy premier league with Honorog. I've gotten so much technical advice from Julian. This is Julian Kanab and Anurag Das, right? In the legacy. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, those, those folks are great. Uh, Julian has given me so much advice saying like things like Phil, your mic sounds like shit. Here's the mic you need to buy. And it's like, thanks Julian. I'll research that right now. Yeah. Um, where just like very bluntly, he was like, Phil, your, your audio is not up to snuff. You need to change it. Yeah. And a- after the second or third time he sent me that message, I'm like, okay, I need to, I need to look into this <laughs> again. I, I tried, I tried to penny pinch for a long time. Right. Uh, because like stream improvements can be expensive. Um, yeah. And but, a lot of like, the times it's better when you're getting started just to do the content rather than worry so much about the gear. Cause I think a lot of people get, fixated or paralyzed on that too right it's not a replacement for actually doing good content but once you have done good content you should probably go all the way right yeah once you get to the point where your content starts producing dollars and you're not just like in the negative as far as your time goes mm-hmm. uh it's 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 worth it to do some upgrades um and on that note uh min of min max blog another stalwart member of the legacy community has given me a lot of advice min essentially like realized I was looking for a new computer. I said, Hey, do you have any advice? And he just sent me a link that he just said, like, click this and buy it. And he built my computer for me. I remember that. I think there, I think, did you ask about that on, on Twitter or somewhere? And I I did. Okay. Okay. I do remember that. That was when I was following legacy a little bit more, more closely. And by the way, I'm also just smiling because Julian's a very good friend of mine. And he was actually the one who pushed me into doing this podcast. So uh, six years later, still doing humans of magic here with you. And it's really a lot of it is to do with him, but I, I love Julian because he's also, he's a very nice guy in real life, but once it comes to magic or recording equipment, he's just like very black and white. Like, you know, James, you, if you play this challenge, you have to play expecting to win the challenge. Don't be happy with the top eight. That's loser talk. And he also says things to me like, it's 2021, dude. You gotta, you gotta have decent audio quality. And he was telling me about the cameras. Thank goodness I don't have a, a visual component to this podcast yet. But if he, if I can imagine, if I did, he'd probably be the first to admonish me. Like you need to get, you know, some nicer gear. So, so shout out to Julian. He's uh, sounds like he's helped uh, more than just you and I, but uh, a great person. So, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And uh, if if I was still streaming. I would be trying to emulate a lot of the things he is doing with all his bells and whistles and soundboards and stuff. Oh, yeah. Like he, he knows his stuff in a way that I, I don't on that end. Yeah. So going back to the, the YouTube part, this is the stuff that really fascinates me because just as a much, much smaller microcosm of an example, I'm just trying now to do a little bit better with my humans and magic Twitter account and Instagram account and trying to build up these things a little bit, try to be more, how do, how do I say it? Intentional with it. 
But I want to go back to your YouTube journey because it's honestly, it sounds pretty daunting. Like, you know, to go from 500 views to the views that your video gets now, if it really spikes, it sounds like there needed to be a lot of, now, obviously you said you had people kind of encourage you and things like that and give you advice. That's very good. But I think there's still something that needs to come from within, right? You have to feel like you have to be willing to commit and you have to be willing to commit to maybe seeing the numbers go up, trickle up bit by bit and still commit to doing daily videos or whatever methodology you have to get to, I guess the question is, you basically need a lot of hard work to get to where you are today, right? With the number of subscribers and views. So how intrinsically did you manage to commit to that? Because it's not easy, right? Many people just kind of quit halfway or not even halfway. So in my opinion, if you're, if you're going to make content, you have to be making it because you love making it. If you are getting into YouTube content because you want to make money, like that is maybe not going to be the healthiest direction for you because you're going to be so focused on the results. And for a long time, your results are going to be bad and you're not going to have the numbers you want. Um, I've, I've seen a handful of people try to go full-time content creator before they were really ready to do that. And I've, I've kind of watched them suffer as they came to that realization of like, oh man, there's a lot of factors here. Some of them are out of my control. So I think like, if you want to be a content creator that like that, that drive has to come from within, you have to have some intrinsic reason why you want to do it. It's fun for you. You enjoy teaching people. You want to be a part of the community. You want to get involved. There has to be some internal reason first for why you're going to make that content because that's the thing that's going to keep you motivated when things suck. So what would be your anchor, your sort of thing that you can go back to when some days feel worse than others? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try not to tear up while, while, while doing this uh, because like some of these comments I get are really heartwarming. Um, ah, failed. Okay. Uh, during the pandemic, when, when things were dark, when, when quarantine was real bad, I had a lot of people send me messages along the lines of like, Phil, you're a daily part of my routine. Like things are bad right now. I'm so glad that I can turn on your video every night. And like, I have that semblance of stability in my life. And hearing that was huge for me. Um, Cause like I, I had a pretty dark couple of years uh, in, in quarantine. I, I don't talk about it a lot, um, but I, I, I take an immunosuppressant for uh, a condition that I have. So I, I like definitely got spooked during um, the worst of the COVID pandemic and I didn't leave the house a lot. So like seeing that I was giving other people like hope and entertainment and a chunk of stability in their life in dark times made me feel really good. And hearing comments like, yeah, my, my boyfriend and I watch your videos every night. Like, thanks for making these. They're a lot of fun. That's That sort of thing is what drives me. When I have a bad day, when I don't feel like recording, I remember that like I'm somebody's daily entertainment. And if I don't do my thing, they're going to be sad. And I try to do my best for them. So it's, it's really coming down to sort of the connection you have with people who watch your videos. Yeah, I, I, I don't know most of them, right? You know, like a lot of these videos have 10,000 views mm -hmm. and many of them much, much more than that. So like, I don't individually know all of these people, 
but I recognize a whole lot of usernames of people who comment on my videos. And like, I know these people are coming back and I know I'm providing something for them that they really like and enjoy. And just going back to what you said, how would you qualify someone who is ready to be a full-time content creator or even just ready to be a content creator? Because you, you use the word ready. Like what does ready mean for you? So I listened to a podcast uh, called Check the Wire. Uh, it was by the YouTuber Northern Lion and Dan Giesling. And Dan Giesling later followed it up with his own podcast after it ended. And I listened to a lot of interviews with other YouTubers, not magic people, but just like YouTubers, Twitch streamers and stuff. And essentially the advice that I got from them was when it no longer makes sense for you financially to work your main job, that's when you pull the trigger. And so like when you're making so much more an hour that it just makes sense for you to make you know, your YouTube videos or to stream on Twitch rather than go to your job. Like that's, that's the point where you could probably really think about it. And I, I'm not there in terms of numbers yet. I'm, I'm not ready to pull that trigger, but like, I can see the gun off in the distance. And I, I realize like maybe someday, maybe, maybe someday that's a reality. But, um, in, in my position that I'm in at, at now where like, I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking about benefits. I'm thinking about retirement, insurance, dental, all that sort of stuff. And like, I want to make sure I'm making a decision that's not only good for me, but it's good for my girlfriend as well. If I end up going in that direction. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So you're, you're, you're working towards something, but at the same time, you're realistic. You're, you're, you're doing the math and figuring that stuff out. Yeah. Like I'm going to play my rounds of magic. If I make top eight, hell yeah. If I don't make top eight, there's another tournament. And, you know, if I spike a win every once in a while, that's great. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm just making forward progress every day. And we'll see where that forward progress gets me. What are some things that you, you're thinking about on the horizon in terms of growing as a, as a content person? Uh, you had mentioned CDH or competitive EDH. Is that, is that one of the, the next things? Yeah, I think that's my my biggest sort of blind spot right now. Uh, and I am very actively working to correct that. So right now, I feel like I understand competitive Magic players. And I feel like people who are, I feel like I understand people who are interested in most constructed formats. And I don't necessarily understand the EDH players and Commander players all that well. I played a little bit in college and I enjoyed it, but I've kind of fallen out of those formats as I've gotten more competitive and more focused on content. And I want to make sure I stay in touch with the regular people. Like I want to make sure I understand what their concerns are. You know, if they're saying like, oh my gosh, this displacer kitten card is broken. Uh, it's going to ruin our formats. Like I, I want to make sure I have enough context to understand the things that they're doing. And EDH uh, is like Magic's most popular format. If I'm going to be a Magic content creator, I, I can't ignore that. Like I, I need to understand these formats. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to work on doing some guest appearances on, on channels. And uh, I, I actually ordered a, a printer that just arrived yesterday. I'm going to make some play test cards. I'm going to try to figure out what's going on in these formats, figure out what I, what I like, what decks do I actually want to, to own. I'm going to work on building a, a physical like webcam setup to house another webcam. 
Um, and, and I'm going to put in the work to understand these formats and their players. And so far, I've loved it. I have not played a single game of Commander yet, but I have had so many people giving me resources, uh, like inviting me to streams before I even have decks together and just like been so welcoming. And that and that's super cool. And this is a portion of the community full of super chill people that I had no idea existed. And I've broadened my horizons and I'm better because of it. It it's a great community. So just sharing a little bit about my side of things, I've started to interview a lot more commander people, personalities, like people in the advisory group. And they're just just great people. I think I think there's a lot of competitive minded people in commander as well. That's sort of like more my my tribe, and I suspect yours as well. So I love that you're exploring that and also trying to figure out how to make it work for you because the c in front of edh you know that that is a more competitive aspect of edh i mean it's not really the legacy format but it's it's sort of like a a distant cousin of of that if you will so that that's really cool that you're willing to to go into there and kind of explore the waters yeah i've I've got Elf Ball printed out. I, ha I haven't sleeved it up yet, but it's it's printed out. So I've got CEDH Elf Ball uh, ready to go. I'm going to need to goldfish that a bit to figure it out because it turns out when you have a 100-card singleton deck, you can jam a whole lot of combos in there. So I've got to make sure I understand them all. Yeah. I also just want to ask you real quick, how what's, been, what's the experience been like? You know, I've been listening, but the Eternal Glory podcast, what's that, what has that process been like you guys have done a lot of episodes i think you you're doing is it the three of you are doing is it a weekly release or a bi-weekly release yeah it's every other week every other week so what's that whole journey been like because that's very different from youtubing or streaming or other things right yeah so th this whole thing arose because bryant won okay uh, i i should back up and start this from the beginning so Bryant Cook, uh, Anurag Das, and Wilson Hunter started this Eternal Glory podcast that eventually went defunct. Just kind of like their schedules didn't line up. Anurag was focusing more on streaming. The podcast died. Mm -hmm. And then Bryant one day on Twitter was like, man, I'm kind of getting the podcast itch again. And I replied like, DM me if you're serious. I would totally do it. And then we were looking for a third to round it out and we found Brian and we kind of had very different backgrounds at the time, but kind of a similar love for legacy and other eternal formats. And we kind of started doing this whole podcast thing and we kind of like rambled a lot for a long time. It was a mix of like solid eternal content plus us just talking about grilling or TV shows or whatever was kind of going on in our life. And recently that's changed. And we've, we've kind of started to get to the point where we we've monetized that and we've kind of honed the show to something that's a little more, more focused and more strategic, you know, kind of like there's a real lesson packed into a lot of the episodes, but a lot of the, the first episodes we did was us just trying to figure out like, what do we do on this podcast? Mm -hmm. And at first it was like a lot of me making very detailed show notes for things for us to talk about. And now a lot more times it's like, okay, here's our topics. Here's our main points. All right. We've got 10 bullet points. We're ready to record the episode. 
So start off being a little bit more structured, which is also how how I like to roll and uh, maybe became more like uh, supervised improv over time where you guys know a theme and you you know each other well enough to to basically explore it right without having a, a super detailed outline, it sounds like. Yeah. Now, now we make sure we, we understand the topic. Well, we make sure we, we know what we're going to talk about in what order, roughly how much time we're going to spend on it. And we're much more comfortable doing things with lighter show notes than we were at the beginning. Like it used to be that I would spend many hours putting together show notes. And for some of our like general lessons episodes where we're trying to teach a skill, sometimes that's still the case, but a lot more of our episodes now are less structured than they used to be. Yeah. So overall, I'm really happy with the direction the podcast has taken because for a long time, it felt like three guys rambling on the topic of legacy. And now it feels like three guys producing a finished product. Like the, the podcast feels much more polished now than it used to, even though in some ways we're putting less front-ended work into the episode. It's, it's like we've leveled up and now we know what we're doing. That's good. And I think the doing a podcast is just a very different dynamic than YouTube for sure, because you're just doing it as a team, right? So there, there needs to be some sort of team chemistry aspect to it, which is different from YouTube, I think, which feels more solitary, at least in the, the construction of it. Yeah, absolutely. On, on YouTube, your interaction is more like, hey, uh, I'm having trouble with this spot. Tell me what you would do in the comments. That's your interaction. Whereas your interaction on a live podcast is you like being willing to say like, no co-host, I, I, I you know, I, I think you're just wrong. Here's why I think you're wrong. Mm-hmm. And you have to be able to have that like friendly, respectful banter with people where you, you do engage with their points and critically think about what they're saying. You know, nobody grows if everyone just nods and goes, uh-huh, and just agrees with each other all the time. I think that's great because I personally don't actually enjoy listening to podcasts where it seems like the co-hosts just agree with each other and echo each other all the time. I think there needs to be a healthy amount of differences of opinion. Otherwise, it's just not that interesting because I think a podcast should be kind of like a real life conversation. There needs to be some give and take back and forth, right? And so I, I love that you guys are doing that. I can definitely feel the dynamic when I listen to it. So that that's that's great that you guys are are doing that, you know? It also helps that we really come from different perspectives. Bryant is the combo guy. Brian is largely the control guy. And I'm largely like the prison taxation guy. So we often evaluate cards and strategies in wildly different ways. And we see very different things when we look at decks. And honestly, that's part of what makes the podcast nice is because we have those different perspectives. Have you had any superheated moments while recording the podcast? Like what was has there been one super divisive topic or topics that have made it challenging? I wouldn't say challenging, but there was definitely one episode where Brian and Bryant went at it for like 20 minutes and I just let them go. It was absolutely just like an eat the popcorn sort of moment where you you just watched them get fired up, vehemently disagree with each other argue it out in live time. And it was awesome. I, I, I literally don't think I said anything for 20 or 25 minutes while they just like fired it off. And, and the viewers loved the episode. Like the energy was absolutely there. Do you remember what they were talking about? No, I absolutely don't. <laughs> okay. That's what happens when you're podcasting and all the things start to blur together, I guess. Yeah. 
Uh, so like, a, I produce so much content that when someone's like, hey, why didn't you do this in match three? I'm like, you need to send me a timestamp. Yeah. Remind like, me, give me, give me I, the context. I don't know. Yeah. I recorded yeah. this a week ago. Mm-hmm. I've, I've moved on. Like, mm-hmm. you got to give me context or I'm not going to yeah. remember. It's like, the, the it's been 13 taxed. videos since then, right? Or leagues or whatnot. Yeah. Excellent. So Phil, what's the best place for people to find you on the internet? Find your content where you like to be found. So like the home for my content is my YouTube channel. Uh, it's it's Thraben U. You can find it under Thraben University as well. That will get you to the same place. As far as a website goes, uh, thrabenuniversity.com. You know, very much have a brand. And you can follow me on Twitter at Thraben U. Excellent. Phil, thank you so much for this conversation. I feel like today I learned a, a bit more, actually more than a bit more about being a content creator. And it's, it's a very inspiring story. And I hope you have a great rest of the evening where you are. Thanks. And I hope you do as well. It was a pleasure to be on here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Humans of Magic. To support the show, visit humansofmagic.com, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at humansofmagic, and you can also consider supporting us at patreon.com slash humansofmagic. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.